Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. We're going to start off tonight with uh, some emails, and then we have a discussion of multiple women's health topics. Our first email is simply a reply to Ronnie in Santa Cruz, who sent a uh, letter about problems that she'd had with uh, uh, circulatory issues and uh, difficulty with having had a vein operation back many years ago. So uh, Ronnie sent a link to the Wild West of Outpatient Vascular Care, which is apparently a ProPublica article. I will go and look at it, Ronnie, and possibly I'll check it out and uh, this exposure on ProPublica and bring it to the audience. So thank you for the suggestion. And I do want to let you all know that if you have an article or something that you'd like me to comment upon or a question along those lines, I'm always happy to do that. I have a number of patients who send me things regularly with the idea that maybe I'll use them on the show, and I often do, because what's on one person's mind is often on more than one person's mind, and this is how we get there. So our next email comes from Bruce in Seaside, and Bruce writes, uh, thank you uh, for the answer. Thanks for your answer to the question, are homegrown fruits and vegetables more nutritious? Uh, it made the gardening worthwhile. I have two things to say. Uh, the heirloom tomatoes you find in the store are raised and shipped exactly the same as regular tomatoes, so they taste the same as regular tomatoes. This comes from a professional tomato grower. And speaking in uh, the local turn, but probably also applicable mostly along the California coast, in our marine environment, I have found that the Better Boy, Early Girl, and Sweet Million varieties give the best results. And uh, I will second that, Bruce. I have definitely got a real Jones for the Sweet Million. Didn't find any uh, plants uh, this year, so I put some other cherry tomatoes in. We'll hope that they come out just as good or at least kind of as good. So with uh, your comments on contaminants in the environment, Bruce goes on to write, you seem to be on to something. Here is an article in the Financial Times about a scientist that pretty much agrees with you. And that article is a very long one. I had to use all of my tricks to get past the paywall, Bruce, but uh, I did. And I will tell you that it is about a uh, a wonderful uh, scientist, one of my role models, her name is Shanna Swan, and she turned 87 last month. Uh, she's the woman who did a lot of work on the effects of uh, plastic and uh, phthalates in particular. She's the person who showed that there are physical changes in male infants that correlate to the level of phthalate in the bloodstream, she's probably the person responsible for getting that taken out of baby pacifiers. Can you imagine what and and bottle nipples? Oops! Now that's an oops. Well, there's still lots of phthalate out there, and 
Uh, I'll just tell you the worst the, the worst place for me is plastic wrap, the kind of cling wrap that you will find your wrapped around your food. It's not so much a problem unless you cook in it or the thing that is wrapped up is fatty because the phthalates are fat soluble and they will migrate into, for example, packaged cheese. Now, I can't uh, recommend avoiding all cheese wrapped in plastic because it's very hard to find it when it isn't. I will give a shout out to, again, to my husband for getting Staff of Life to wrap their cheese in uh, wax paper. I think he accomplished a lot of help to people doing that. But if uh, I don't expect everybody to go out and buy big wheels of cheese and then cheese wax and try to <laughs> try to uh, take care of themselves. What I do recommend, however, is get your own wax paper and decant the cheese and stay away from those little wrapped pa- wrapped cheeses, the, the ones that are like a slice that's wrapped in plastic. Those are going to carry a lot of uh, plastic compound in them and you don't have to buy those. You can buy a little wire tool to slice your own cheese, and it works just fine. So I may come back to you with a longer version of this story, and thank you very much for your email. Our next email today on KSQD comes from Anonymous in Santa Cruz. Uh, Anonymous writes, uh, a very long email, so we're going to cover it thoroughly because she uh, asks two really excellent questions, one of which will reveal why I know uh, her sex. Oral health follow-up and supplementation during pregnancy. Ah, cat's out of the bag. Uh, thank you for your indispensable program, your depth and breadth of knowledge, as well as the wonderful topics you cover is incredible. This is a long message, so feel free to pick and choose and edit the content. So first of all, Anonymous had some follow-up questions on the oral health topic that we covered on the program recently. Uh, she wanted to know what I thought about Desert Essence Natural Neem Mouthwash. And... So I'll tell you, um, uh, Anonymous, that neem is a uh, n- agent that is used in Ayurvedic medicine. I have, uh, it's considered benign. I uh, use neem as a, uh, to discourage bacteria and f- fungi uh, in my garden. And I always rinse my things after before I cook them, so I'm not so worried about the residual neem. When you're talking about using it as a mouthwash, I would discourage swallowing it. And the I looked for okay, well, how does neem work, and what does it do? And I found a very nice uh, article in an Ayurvedic website talking about how neem is. Uh, good against biofilms. And then there was a lot uh, of discussion about biofilms, and uh, there were some references which I looked at. And the suggestion on the website was this is a great thing. It gets rid of the bad biofilms. It doesn't get rid of the good biofilms. And they had references number four to six. So I went and looked at references number four to six. And they were all about biofilms and bad bacteria. They were all in vitro studies. 
and they showed that all the bacteria formed in different kinds of biofilms and that uh, through different mechanisms and that neem discouraged the formation of all of them. Now, I can't make the leap from that reference to the statement that was made in the in the Ayurvedic website that it's safe for your probiotics and for their biofilm because all the good guys as well as the bad guys form biofilms in your gut and they are specific more or less to the type of bacteria that form them. So if you have bad bacteria, it's hard to eradicate because the bad microbiome uh, will have built a bad biofilm and you'll have to figure out how to get rid of that biofilm. Typically, if I'm trying to reboot someone's microbiome, I'm using uh, pancreatic enzymes, and both the vegetable and the animal enzymes do a good job of clearing bacterial biofilm back. And so taking in the kind of big doses that I prescribe for this, and particularly taking them on an empty stomach, is a good way to clear biofilm. And then at the same time, giving probiotics, good bacteria that gives them a chance essentially to build their own biofilm. Now, those probiotics rarely are the ones that end up colonizing that biofilm. But I believe that one of the best uses for commercial probiotics, bifidobacterium, lactobacillus, and and et cetera, is to essentially create a ground cover of a, a biofilm that will be conducive to the production of good bacteria. So long Long answer, but really, I don't think you should be swallowing neem either. I don't think people should be swallowing colloidal silver, and I don't believe that it's established that it's good for the that it that neem is good for the good bacteria. In fact, based on the science I was able to find, I'd say stay away from that. Uh, I think that mouthwashes really are potentially not good for your microbiome, and I'm afraid of doing more harm than good. So I try to follow that that precautionary principle in this case. Next question, you mentioned that women using fluoride toothpaste should consider iodine supplementation. Uh, that's true. Uh, then Anonymous goes on to say, I have a very low baseline TSH level. Now, TSH for the audience is thyroid-stimulating hormone, Uh, A low TSH usually means that the person has too much thyroid hormone, and it's backwards, right? Low TSH means too much thyroid, high TSH means not enough. In general, uh, iodine is that when people are deficient in iodine, they'll have a high TSH. Um, What... Anonymous goes on to say is, I notice that when I take multivitamins with iodine, my TSH drops further and I have side effects. She lists loose, urgent stools, emotional hyperactivity, so I avoid iodine. Can you explain why I have those side side effects when taking iodine and are there any steps I should take to protect myself from the fluoride? So, uh, first of all, uh, in light of the quest, the title supplementation, uh, supplementation during pregnancy, um, anonymous, I think you absolutely have to get checked for something called Graves' disease, because what I'm thinking is that the iodine is stimulating your thyroid, and your thyroid is already overstimulated. 
Graves' disease disease can often present with your sorts of symptoms when it's mild, but this is not a disease I would want someone going through a pregnancy to have. Graves' disease is an autoimmune disease in which the body makes an antibody against the thyroid, but this antibody is not uh, blocking the uh, the thyroid uh, site that accepts the stimulation hormone, the TSH, it's actually imitating TSH. It's sitting on that site and fooling the thyroid into producing hormone. Now, that means that the pituitary gland via the hypothalamus is going to get the message that there's too much thyroid in your system, and it's going to basically lower your TSH. When you take iodine and it does what it would do in a deficiency situation, which is stimulate your thyroid, you produce, your already overstimulated thyroid produces more thyroid hormone. You cross that threshold from silent disease into symptomatic disease temporarily, triggered by the iodine, and you get these symptoms. So it's very important that you get this thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin test. And I'm going to give you the Quest number. It's 30551 for Quest Lab. If you if you're, you and your doctor use a different lab, uh, the generalized code for this is called a CPT. Those are universal. All labs use the same CPT code. And that uh, is 84445. So eight, four times three, and then a five, eight, forty-four. 45. And that is what you need to do. If that test is negative, I would say go one step further and get an ultrasound of your thyroid because you may have what's called a hot nodule. This is an independent area of the thyroid that is a runaway train and is just pumping out thyroid hormone. It has lost its ability to respond to TSH. And so it's not turning off even when the TSH levels are very low. This is a benign tumor, effectively easily treated, but you certainly want to identify hyperthyroidism and treat it before you go there. Okay, this is super, super important. Going on with the same email, because there's lots of good questions here, uh, about putting bleach in the water pick. What do you think? think about that. Um, that person asking whether they should use bleach to disinfect their unit in between uses. I heard that. I went looking. I found one product that was recommended by uh, someone at a functional medicine conference that I'd attended. It was in my notes. It is, uh, and it was some sort of a form of iodine and a very dilute 0.2% solution of uh of bleach, sodium hypochlorite. So that's, you know, okay, maybe for for sterilizing your thing, but I would rather you used vinegar. Vinegar can be consumed in very large amounts. It's a safe agent, and it does an excellent job of sterilizing equipment. It's probably going to be a lot easier for the water pick as well. The company recommends not using bleach in your water pick or peroxide in your water pick, and I think it's probably because it's erosive to the seals, whereas vinegar is not. Final question. 
My partner and I are actively trying to conceive. I wanted to check in with you about any recommended supplements I should consider or stop to optimize the pregnancy. Uh, magnesium, methyl B complex, and then in con- and then in uh, parentheses, she states, I have two copies of the MTHFR mutation. And then she lists a bunch of other supplements, uh, mostly B vitamins, vitamin D at 5,000 units, taurine at six at about 700, fish oil at about a little under 1,000 milligrams of EPA, DHA, carcetin 500. So first of all, as we go through this, I want to say, that in terms of the things you're taking, those are all good for you. You're taking them in appropriate amounts with one exception, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, The fish oil could go up. Uh, DHA of 1,000 milligrams a day has strong correlations with increased um, early, the achievement of increased early childhood biomarkers. I think there's one study that shows IQ at uh, in early childhood is improved. I'm not sure how good IQ testing is in early childhood, and I don't remember how old the children were in the study. But definitely the early biological milestones like talking and walking and, you know, the how using a pincer grasp to feed yourself a raisin, all of those things are pretty well validated markers of precocious brain development. And we see that with higher doses of DHA, which is one of the things that you'll find in omega-3 fatty acids. So I like what you're doing, with the exception of the methyl tetrahydrofolate. And uh, we've talked about this a little bit on the show, but this is an excellent time for me to do a little bit of a deep dive. Let's talk about folic acid in pregnancy and why it's so important and why this MTHFR mutation is so critical. We've known that we've known since the early 90s. This was the work of uh, Dr. Wald, and he and his co-researchers found that uh, if women had a history of neural tube defects, this is this can be as mild as spina bifida or a tiny dimple at the base of the spine, or as severe as a baby born with anencephaly, which is no brain at all. And one of the things that we see with the Zika virus, which is still out there, although it's lo- dropped off the news cycle, is anencephaly. And so it is attacking the neural tube as it develops in these pregnant women who contract this particular virus. And looking at neural tube defects where women have already had one pregnancy with this. Wald found that you need four milligrams a day of folic acid as an effective doses. In in cases where there's no previous cases of neural tube defects, you could get by with 800 milligrams of folic acid. And I'm taking a look at the amount of uh, folate that you're taking that you list here. And the methylated B complex may have that, that 800 micrograms of methylfolate, which would make it adequate uh, in terms of folic acid. But because you have this methyl tetrahydrofolate cons, uh, mutation, which we'll go into detail in just a moment, I think you would be well advised to consider taking a higher dose than that and considering yourself to be at 
high risk. And we'll talk about other groups of women that are at high risk for their pregnancies for neural tube defects, which I just have to emphasize is a devastating birth birth defect. Uh, And I'm going to use the word defect because it is a defect in the formation of the brain and spinal column, and it can lead to neurologic symptoms uh, that are mild in childhood and get worse as the child gets older. It can lead to complete loss of the brain, failure to form, and thus non-viability. And everyone wants to avoid that. So let's start with who is at increased risks. And there's certain genotypes, we'll go into that in a moment, but certainly a previous pregnancy with neural tube defects or family history of neural tube defects. And so one size does not fit all when you're talking about genetic variation. And so the dose that works for most women for prevention may in fact not be the right dose for you. Other groups are women with obesity. A BMI greater than 35 uh, is associated with an increased risk. Any kind of diabetes, either type 1 or type 2, anyone with any kind of lifestyle challenges that are going to impede compliance, and that would include uh, any kind of substance abuse disorder. It would include homelessness or economic precarity. These are all groups with higher levels of neural tube defects who benefit from higher doses of folic acid. Uh, Women who take anti-epileptic drugs, all the epileptic drugs uh, that I can think of do interfere with folic acid. Uh, There are certain agents, metformin interferes with folic acid and B vitamin absorption in general. And of course, that's partly where the diabetes risk comes in. But women with type 1 diabetes still have that risk and metformin is not recommended for them. Methotrexate and certain sulfur drugs, sulfonamides, are folate antagonists. They interfere with the action of folate. Smoking, uh, certain high-risk ethnic groups, Celtic, Sikh, and Northern Chinese have higher rates of neural tube defects. So let's get a little geeky here uh, and follow the journey of folate of folate as it moves through the body with reference to where this can go wrong. It's a complicated process. Of course, it starts in food. And natural folate uh, occurs in a form called polyglutamated. These cannot be absorbed, and so they need to be converted to their monoglutamate form before they can get into blood circulation. There's an enzyme called folopolygamma-glutamate uh, carboxylase, carboxypeptidase 2. I'm not going to say that again. Thank you very much. Um, it's responsible for breaking up this polymer chain of glutamate on the natural occurring folates. And it's on the tip of the intestinal brush border. So if you have malabsorption, if you have celiac disease, you're probably not going to have adequate functioning of this. And people with celiac need to be looking at their serum folate level. Uh, Once it's monoglutamate, folate's absorbed into the bloodstream, um, and it's picked up by something called the reduced folate carrier. And so it enters the blood 
as the monoglutamate, 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. It goes into the cytoplasm of the cells through three mechanisms. It can be carried in by this reduced folate carrier, and there are also uh, receptors for folate, alpha, beta, and gamma. And the beta and gammas actually have lower affinity for methyl tetrahydrofolate than alpha. And mostly you find the, the folate receptor alpha in the placenta and the kidneys and the choroid plexus of the brain. The, the uh, reduced folate carrier is everywhere. But this, what this tells you is that there's increased tissue uptake in these three tissues. And of course, the placenta, you're building a baby body, you need a lot of it. Now, this glutamate, the glutamate carboxyl peptidase that we first talk about that breaks it down, there's a mutation in that. And so if you have that mutation, you only can absorb synthetic folic acid. There are also people with antibodies against the folate receptor that block the binding of folic acid. And this has been identified in a small study of women whose pregnancies had been complicated by neural tube defects. What do these women have in common? Oh, they have this mutation. Or they have this antibody. Uh, There's another... Uh, genetic variation that affects, surprise, surprise, the reduced folate carrier. And that results in an impaired ability to get folate uh, into the cell. And this has also been associated with neural tube defects. And it's particularly strong when there isn't enough folic acid supplementation. So this is one that really amplifies those dietary and uh, cultural determinants of health. Uh, now, once you get inside the cell, the methyl tetrahydrofolate is really important. Okay, it's a methyl donor. It's a cofactor in critical metabolic pathways. Uh, it helps uh, with remethylating homocysteine. And in fact, homocysteine itself is toxic to the vascular wall. So people with high levels of homocysteine have uh, an increased risk of heart disease we can, it's probably very, very long-term because none of the studies giving folic acid uh, to people who, ha- uh, who have high levels of homocysteine have shown an improvement in heart disease rates, but none of these studies has gone on for more than about five or 10 years. And it's my guess that this is a long-term problem that is not going to, that the damage is already done by the time we figure it out. There's homocysteine and methionine, that are affected. Uh, there is a there is a there is a conversion uh, that re- that is really critical for DNA silencing. For in other words, creating uh, downregulation of cancer genes, and in fact, uh, the MTFHR mutation when you are a homozygote for two bad copies is associated with increased risks of many of the more common cancers, which is probably all that we would be able to turn up because rare cancers being rare, they're not, this isn't necessarily being studied. Uh, Women who have the C667T uh, MTHFR reductase mutation uh, are at increased risk. They have about a double risk of having neurotube defects. 
And if the baby has this polymorphism, in other words, if he gets a, a bad copy from both parents, uh, the baby has a um, 80% increased or a 0.8 odds, uh, 1.8 odds ratio. So uh, there is another SNP in common in SNP. These are present in like 3% of the population when you look for them. It's also associated with neural tube defects. So if you've had no prior pregnancy with neural tube defects, your population risk is 0.1% or 1 per 1,000 pregnancies, which is one too many if you ask me. Uh, But what Wald showed was that if you give a very big wonking dose of folic acid in the first trimester, or in the case of someone with the MTHFR mutation, I would say methylated folic acid, you reduce this increased risk by 75%. So it's really critical that you do this, and it's really critical that you get that dose up high enough. Now, I will say that anyone with malabsorption, turns out 5% of women of reproductive age uh, have some sort of malabsorption. There's a lot of subclinical Crohn's disease out there, for example, and there's a lot of subclinical celiac disease. And obese women, as I've said, have an increased risk, so more folate is really important for them as well. So I think in the case of anonymous, uh, that 5 milligram per day dose for several months, the first trimester of pregnancy, is unlikely to cause any problems, and it may provide substantial risk reduction. The most important thing here is watch out for uh, agitation and irritability. If you get nervous on this, it means you have some additional downstream mutations, and you really need the services of a functional medicine doctor who understands genomics to figure out what's your past, what your best path is going to be here. Now, there have been concerns about high-dose folic acid that it might increase later risk of colon cancer. These have been, uh, these have never shown up in meta-analysis. They've been in uh, isolated studies, but it's still out there in, you know, in an internet search, you're going to find it. But we're not talking about people who are megadosing folic acid for years and years and show up with colon cancer. We're talking about three months, and you just can't get uh, enough in your diet. I recently came across an article that said that even in women taking prenatal vitamins, they often fail to achieve the critical blood level, and that critical blood level is 900 nanomoles per liter in red blood cell folate. Let me repeat that. You get a test called red blood cell folate, which is not a serum folate, looking what's getting inside the cells, because a lot of these mutations are about processing, right? So you're looking inside the cells for that folic acid. It needs to be 900 nanomoles per liter before con- before conception. So please, 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 given your situation, get that test and treat accordingly. Get that level up to where it needs to be. And so I want to thank you for such an excellent excellent set of questions. I've really enjoyed answering them, and I think it's provided people with a lot of useful information. I see that we have a caller. I'll give it a shot and see what happens. I'm a real person. You're a real person, and you're not a, you're not a dial tone. <laughs> all right, we're all good now. Uh, so, 
What can I do for you? Well, I have two questions. I, I have a friend who just mailed me a letter, and I'm really worried about his health, and then there's another guy I worry about, too. And they both have stuff that I've never heard about. One is called uh, Actemra, and I think it's called A-C-T-E-M-R-A. That's the local friend. And the faraway friend has the thing he's going back to, Key or K-Truda, K-E-Y, like a uh, car key, mm-hmm. Truda, T-R-U-D-A. What do you know about these? Well, um, first of all, the first one I'm going to have you spell for me because it's not working for me in terms of knowing about it. Okay. Okay. Hang on, hang on. Oh. I don't normally write things down. Okay, I'm ready. Go for it. Well, I learned to write and read last week. This would be good practice for me, too. <laughs> okay, what is it? Actemra, A-C-T-E-M-R-A. I think it's Actemra or Actemra. Okay, that sounds like that sounds like a pharmaceutical. It's probably... Now, do they have the same medical condition or related medical condition? No, these conditions? are two different people. Okay, all right. So, And, and this is an injection one, this local guy says, and I don't know what that K-Truda or K-Truda is all about, but that's a different person... Uh, let's start with let's start with the Ketruda. Okay? okay. So this is a Ketruda is a is an, a new kind of anti-cancer drug. Uh-huh. And it's not an auto, it's not it's called immunotherapy. Uh-huh. And uh Ketruda is what we call an immune checkpoint inhibitor. It's used in a lot of cancers. And uh, now it was, I think, first came out for po- uh, possibly it was uh, colon cancer, but it may have been one of the li- one of the lymphomas. But in any event, uh, Keytruda was uh, discovered along with a number of other drugs that fit the same category, and un- a lot of cancers manage to hide from the immune system, uh-huh. and they they do that by by exercising something called an immune checkpoint. So when so the immune checkpoint essentially makes the immune system, you know, nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. So if you inhibit that, the immune system is able to see the cancer and it uh-huh. stimulates the immune system. But the problem is if you also let's say have a latent autoimmune disease like maybe you have low grade Crohn's like I was mentioning for the malabsorption that nobody kind of knows they've got. Uh, they may have a little anemia, and no, nobody's checked their stool because they're 20, and no one's looking for colon cancer. <laughs> and yet, they've got... Uh, so you give someone like that Keytruda, and they can get hypothyroidism. In fact, it's a very common side effect where the immune system goes af- attacks the thyroid, and they end up hypothyroid afterwards because they get thyroid inflammation. Other things that can happen under the circumstance include... Uh, a uh, just massive kind of febrile reaction, very much like the cytokine storm that we see in COVID, where everything sort of lights up at once like a giant immune forest fire. But these drugs are transformational in cancer, uh, particularly the triple negative breast cancer is one where we triple negative means we have got nothing. <laughs> we are triply negative at coming up with any other drug that we can attack the cancer with. Uh-huh. And it works for that. It allows the cancer to be seen by the immune system. Now, just from the name of this other one, I'm I know these things by their by their generic name or their class name, and every pharmacy, every pharmaceutical company is kind of coming up 
with the uh, the idea that we're going to use this. So Actemra yeah. is actually tocilizumab, and anytime anything ends in AB, it's a it's an it's an it's an antibody. And so this particular drug is one of the disease-modifying agents for rheumatic diseases. We call them DMARDs because we like to give nicknames and acronyms to things. And these drugs came around mm, over 20 years ago. And you've probably seen the ads for the psoriasis uh, drug that is always on TV. I cannot watch commercial television without you know, seeing <laughs> about how I'm wearing sleeveless clothes again because my psoriasis is controlled with, <laughs> you know, fill in the blank, but they always end in AB because these are antibodies that are designer antibodies and they go after uh, tumor necrosis factor, which is a key part of the inflammatory cascade. If you take a tumor necrosis factor modulator, sometimes it's antibodies against the drug, sometimes it's antibodies against the receptor, Either way, what you're doing is inhibiting the immune system. So it's right. kind of the exact opposite of Keytruda, but they're both antibodies. Now, in the case of the uh, the DMARDs, you inhibit the immune system. That's great. Your inflammatory autoimmune disease gets better, but your ability to identify and fight cancer gets worse. And so there's a bump in leukemia in individuals who are on this drug for prolonged periods, which, of course, if you're knocking back rheumatoid arthritis, you're probably on it every day for, you know, the, the, the duration. And we do see after about 10 years, we start to see a statistical bump in cancers. It's not massive, and it's certainly, you know, quality of life-wise, it's certainly worth taking these drugs. So I'm going to basically tell you that your, your friend on the... Uh, Actemra is mm-hmm. treating an autoimmune disease, and your friend on the Keytruda is treating some kind of cancer. Right. Okay. Well, I'm concerned when he. Well, I have another question, but I'm concerned because he said he's back to Keytruda, and that that's well, well, it didn't work the first time. I guess I. That's my. Um, well, I would say that if you let's suppose you have a tumor and it's spread to a lymph node, you might be given this drug as part of your therapy if that lymph node couldn't be removed, or maybe it's a little spot in the liver, and that Mm -hmm. spot might disappear, and you might actually eliminate the cancer there, but there might be a later, you might see something cropping up in a different location, and it may or may not be resistant to the Keytruda. So it's the way we address cancers is generally we have this sort of protocol, and we, it's our best guess, it's what's going to work, and then we modify it if it doesn't work, or if the cancer comes back, we try it again, thinking, well, maybe we just didn't treat long enough. And then uh-huh. if we don't see a quick response, then we pivot to something else. And it's, yeah, seated, it's very seat at the pants. Okay, Cancer therapy used to be more, you know, we'd do a big trial, and we'd have thousands of people, and we'd see an improvement, right. and we'd come up with a protocol. And now we can look at the DNA of the cancer, so we're checking for mutations and which mutations does it have. Some of those are targetable with these new drugs. And we're doing all of this stuff that's very individualized. So you hear about personalized medicine. Oncology has just personalized over the last decade so massively 
that it's li- literally every cancer is almost unique, or at least right. it's part of a subgroup. Right. I know one of his one of his claims was, and I disputed it, and he corrected me. Uh, I said, "Well, you lived in." Uh, he said he lived in Denver. That's you know more than a mile high, and. He, he says he got it there. No, 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 no. You don't even smoke. And why should your cancer be in your lungs? And he has had uh, melanoma. And I thought, no, well, maybe sun exposure. But I don't know what the deal is. So Ketruda, I believe, is his second bout of uh, dealing with his cancers. Uh-huh. Wherever they are, prostate cancer and lung cancer. And he's not a smoker. Never been. Well, I'd yeah. be betting. Does he have? Uh, first of all, uh, I don't know about radon in. Uh, in uh, uh, Colorado, but uh-huh. that's another risk factor for lung cancer. Uh-huh. And if it, it's a naturally occur, uh, occurring radioactive yeah. material that is a gas, no, it's not under all our houses, well, but it most. sure is under some, and it yeah. just depends on where your house is. Yeah. So uh, that that's a possibility. There may okay. be some familial thing. Uh, he might yeah. have been diagnosed in Colorado, but you don't know that he got it because he lived in Colorado, really. Yeah. Neither no. does he. All right. Well, three things. One is one of the things I want you to donate your choice. Donate your brain, uh, and you're going to live forever uh, to either Cleveland Clinic or Mayo, or it's up to you because you have such a wealth of knowledge and you span it all. And I don't understand how you can do it, but that's why your billions of brain cells are really focused. I appreciate them. Well, thank you. Uh, okay. did, did you have any follow-up questions? Yeah. The second thing is. You bring up immune system, and you know, I've never understood, well, is there a particular organ or all the organisms are in concert to promote and continue good health, or else one starts collapsing and there's a cascade of others have to collapse too? The immune system could explain it to us. Okay, okay. Uh, every organ ages. Every time the cells divide, there's right. the potential for damage in the cells. There's potential for loss. And also, there's actually a built-in mechanism that programs cell death. There are very few immortal organisms uh-huh. um, on the planet. Almost everything dies. That's right. how evolution works. Right, right. And so there's that. Uh, and then the wear and tear from just use. Uh, proteins get hit by cosmic rays. Uh, yep. So even though you've built this beautiful, perfect st- structure... Uh, it deteriorates, just like if you leave your curtains closed across a window in the sunlight, they're going to rot from the ultraviolet radiation, right? right? So that's happening. And there's a lot of hereditary and uh, mutations that are acquired that affect the lifespan of organs, a lot of environmental factors like your diet and your stress level and all of these other things. Just Just think about a car, for example. Let's take two identical cars. And one is a guy who never does the maintenance, drives it till you know, drives it until the oil light is on for a week before he <laughs> does anything. And the other person is like following the protocol and in fact, you know, putting in additives and just sure. doing everything perfectly. And then which car are you gonna bet on is gonna make it <laughs> to uh, right. the you know, is still gonna be running in ten years and uh and mileage too. When yep. we put yep. mileage on ourselves, the people who do like you go and visit Mount Everest, um, you know, for go and climb Mount Everest, you put way more mileage on your body <laughs> while you're doing that than you do if you are, uh, let's say, working as a uh, 
aerobics instructor in Santa Cruz. <laughs> okay. It's just low impact aerobics, I will add. Right, uh, right. Okay. It's just, that's how it is. Uh, the immune system, well, it can be a bad actor, but it's also a good actor. Like everything, there's, you know, there's a Goldilocks zone for immune system function yeah. where it's keeping you safe and not endangering you. Yep. Well, what you're saying is it's all your fault, right? We need scapegoats. Well, maybe you do. I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of sick I'm, of sheep, the scapegoats, and I know you. I, I, I know you're kidding. All Donald right. Donald blames everybody. So. <laughs> well, yes. Let's not let's not emulate no, we'll, the orange we'll one. Thank, All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. So I promised you some women's health stories, and those are forthcoming. Uh, first one is a short one from Nature News. Early data looking at uh, the U.S. Uh, the changes after Roe versus Wade was overthrown, and uh, this is uh, from a various early days yet, right? We've just, it's just a year, but there's been massive changes. At this point, 23% of U.S. women who are of reproductive age uh, having have uh, on the are more than 300 miles away from the nearest abortion provider. So 23% of women are have had a uh, an increase of about 300 miles. And then the study also points out that in Texas, uh, because they've got uh, a they've got stations, uh, border checkpoints within the state, so they look for illegal undocumented immigrants. And they've got a six-week ban now in Texas with, uh, as far as I know, no exceptions. So if you're an undocumented pregnant woman, with a, you're not getting an abortion, whether you want the baby or not. You can't get out of Texas and not get caught. Uh, and so you are caught, you are doubly caught. Uh, there's also been some uh, situations, uh, this was another case from Texas, where, uh, a, where a woman had a premature rupture of the membranes. This is where the water breaks, and in the, ca- the case of it being before 22 weeks, there's absolutely no chance of carrying that pregnancy to the point of viability. That's, you know, halfway through the pregnancy, but the baby is still not in, in any position to be able to be a baby. It's going to basically die. And the standard of care is to offer an abortion in this situation because it's dead. It's going to die after the water breaks. It's going to be in there and it's going to rot and the mother, and it's going to get bacteria in it and the mother will get sepsis and die. And uh, that happened. Uh, that has happened. There have been a couple of deaths from sepsis. There was one who was saved, uh, but there's documentation that her water broke and they, she went to the doctor and they couldn't, they said, well, go home and come back if labor starts or if you develop a fever. And yeah, she developed a fever all right, and she was in the intensive care unit for weeks, and she almost lost her uterus. Uh, and this is this is one that's been documented, but there's, how, how can we be so absurd as to put women's lives at risk like this uh, over, I'm sorry, this is a, this is not 
something that I can understand. All right, next one, bit positive. Uh, vaginal seeding is safe and benefits infants. What's vaginal seeding? Well, that's where when a baby is born by C-section, you take a swab and you swab the vagina. The baby did not come through the vagina on that patient, and it should have, but it couldn't. So we had to take it out, and I might add, it is almost invariable that just before the C-section, there is a dose of antibiotics given intravenously. So not only did they not get the, the flora they needed, but they got a dose of antibiotics that's going to make it hard for them to establish their flora. But this vaginal uh, swab technique does actually work because the uh, intravenous antibiotics that are given to the mother flash through the system quickly and are eliminated. So you can get things rooting. And we know that C-section babies uh, have higher rates of opportunistic bacteria. In other words, the bugs, the bad bugs, the, the, antibio- the antibiotic-resistant bugs that are in the hospital show up in the guts of these babies. And months later, they tend to lack common gut microbes that would support immune function. And this probably has a strong influence on things like allergies. And uh, so this was a study done in China, and it was 76 infants and mothers. It was randomized and double-blinded. These women came in, they were going to have a C-section, and their vaginas were swabbed. Half of them were swabbed, and that swab was put in the mouth of the baby. The other half, they were swabbed, and that swab was discarded, and another swab was covered with salt water and put in the mouth of the baby. Sterile saline. So... Everything including, it was a good study, everything including the procedure were identical in the two groups. There has been an overwhelming concern on the part of the American College of OBGYN that vaginal seeding could transmit pathogens. So in this study, the women were screened for any of all the numerous infections that can be in the vagina that could threaten to help the babies, like group B beta strep, for example, and all of the women were cleared. There were no complications in compared to the two babies, but when they were between three and six months old, the researchers asked them to fill out a checklist, and these were for those neurodevelopmental milestones I mentioned. Communication, movement, problem-solving, reaching for toys, smiling at their reflections, things like that. And the babies who had gotten the swab did better, and maybe that's not enough, probably not to prove anything about neurological development, but we do know that babies that are born by C-section have higher rates of attention deficit disorder and autism spectrum. And that may be because of some third variable that causes uh, them to be born by uh, C-section. We don't know. There could be health issues that affect the brain and the pregnancy such that C-section becomes necessary. Another study did look at atopic dermatitis and uh, showed an improvement in that in 300 participants that had vaginal seeding. I don't believe this was controlled. Uh, There was another study looking at allergies and asthma. That's in process, and preliminary results have not been published. But you could do this another way. You could take poop samples from the mother and dilute it down and just give them a very dilute poop solution in a baby bottle, Uh, but the vaginal 
uh, swabbing feels, I don't know, somehow cleaner uh, than uh, the poop swab. Uh, on the other hand, most women do poop during labor, so maybe it's not such a, uh, such a huge big deal. Got a few more minutes. There's a huge improvement in the breast cancer survival rate. Uh, the study was looking at rates of dying from breast cancer compared to the early 1990s. And this had over half a million women in England who were diagnosed with early invasive breast cancer between January 93 and December 2015. Now, back in 93, uh you had a 14% risk of dying within five years. By 2010 to 15, it had fallen to a 4.5, uh, sorry, 4.9%. So a, just a really substantial uh, improvement. And remember, these are all women uh, diagnosed with early invasive breast cancer. So some of that's prob- some of that's definitely mammograms, but some of them, it, some of that is actually therapy. And we should all be grateful, uh, even those of the uh, penile persuasion may find themselves getting breast cancer. That's something that isn't talked about, but men need a breast check every now and then just to kind of run their hands over it, feel for lumps. Uh, next uh, next quick study uh, looks at early menopause and dementia. And this was a study looking at uh, Alzheimer's in women with premature dementia. And uh, this study looked at brain scans of 193 women and 99 men. And they looked for beta amyloid and tau. And they found, not surprisingly, that women who entered menopause prematurely were more likely to have a buildup of both proteins, but not if they had started hormone replacement therapy soon after their symptoms began. If they waited five or more years that actually did not work. In fact, it may have been, it may have made it worse to start them on uh, hormone replacement therapy after five years. So I am going on the record as saying if you have early menopause or even if you have on-time menopause, you really want to consider using estrogen unless you have major risk factors against it. And we've come to the end of an hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. It was quite the interesting random walk, and I've certainly enjoyed it, and I'll be back next week with more of the same. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.